0: So, I'll read uh, for just a few minutes and we're going to get into the text. The Father is leading us on a path where revival begins to transform culture rather than stimulate Christians. Throughout history, I, I've spent the greater part of my life, my adult life in the I think I read my first book on revival when I was six or seven, um, which, you know, that's what children do. Uh, and um, I've just been fascinated with the concept of what it means. It really wasn't until um, until I grew older that I began to be comfortable with the fact that, um, that w- the way I became content to allow history to define what my should life and walk should look like rather than allow him to define it. You know? To look around me and say, oh, this is how it's supposed to act and this is how it's supposed to work, rather than allow. And um, so he's really putting us on a path, uh, and I think we'll talk about it in a few weeks, that moves us from revival. Because essentially we've been in what God has called revival for about two years, just over two years. Um, and that's an interesting thing in itself because I, I never even thought I would use that terminology. Eli, I'm sorry, What I think he's going to be doing is moving us from revival into resurrection. Um, And in fact, when you look at in Mary Webster's dictionary, when you look up the definition of of resurrection, um, revival is actually one of the definitions of that word. And the thing is, though, um, anytime we allow man or religion to define something that is spiritual. We've taken a spiritual principle and made it natural. And so anytime when we force God to adapt to fit our culture, it's went the wrong direction. And so what happens with revival is we associate revival with long lines outside of a church building or goosebumps that happen. Or or loud preaching or good preaching or long preaching or people falling down, all that kind of stuff. And none of those things are wrong. None of those things are wrong. I prefer it when people fall down when nobody's around them. This is my I mean I'm good either way. If you don't fall, I, fall. I don't care. But when you look at the scripture, um, you look at the scripture, you're never gonna find the time that, that somebody touched someone else and they fell. You're gonna find times that they were touched and they fell. So if they have time to look behind them to make sure that we have catchers in place, stand over them with the, the, the dress drapes. Right? You know, we stand over them with the dress drapes and we get a bunch of catchers behind them and we make the whole thing about us and about them. And then that then we wonder why pastors live in absolute narcissism and gauge how effective and anointed they are by how many people fall down. I would rather gauge how effective I am by how many So <clears throat> this is multi-layered. This this path of true revival that transforms culture. Um, this is multi-layered. However, it is bringing us to a place where we move from freedom into liberty. We'll probably talk about that in a couple weeks. But there is a difference between liberty and freedom. Freedom is a momentary relief from oppression. Liberty is when it becomes cellular and a lifestyle. That's why, actually, the Bible says, the Lord is that spirit, and where that spirit is, there is liberty, not freedom. Why? Because his intent isn't to give momentary relief. His intent is to change your pathway. His intent is to empower your lifestyle, not where you feel stirred up, stimulated, and excited for the next three hours after you leave church but where then what overshadows you starts being a shadow that impacts people that you walk around, where your shadow heals people because his shadow overshadows you, right? That's the intention, where we move from powerful church services into a people that live in resurrection, that we live as salt and light, both agents of transformation. The thought behind trans, uh, transformation is absolutely incredible. To actually be transfigured into a likeness that is not our own, but a direct depiction of the one whose face we deeply stare. Pastor Bill and I were talking on um, on Thursday night before church, the concept of um, transfiguration. When we talk about that Jesus went to the Mount of Transfiguration, he was transfigured, what that means. That word's only used, he reminded me, um, Three times in the entire Bible, um, and one of the other times is when it talks about us staring into a glass darkly, but that when we then see Him, we're made like Him in His image. This The other time is the renewing of our mind um, that actually happens that propels us from glory to glory. So when you think about what it truly means to be transfigured, it is a metamorphosis, it is a resurrection that actually happens whereby our lifestyle changes. And the thing that is really interesting to me is when you look at the examples of Jesus' visitation post-resurrection, it was always interesting how he would do things, and boy, we're going to get into, I think, Thomas's discussion with Jesus at some point, but how Jesus, all of those encounters, would call the people out of fear and into the adoption of Father so that he could commission them to transform the culture. I mean, do you realize that Jesus and 12 dudes changed everything? That's just incredible. That's just absolutely ridiculous to even think it's possible. That's the point. From the, uh, so we, when we properly value the encounter of his glory, we become developed from the place or glory we currently exist in into another glory. The, the thought of glory to glory is how we're to ascend. You do realize that the point of this is that revival for us is not supposed to be something that's a shot in the arm to get us excited for the next year and a half and to give us some fuel to run on the fumes of for the next 10 years. That's what revival has meant historically. But that's not how he works. What, is the, what does the scripture say? That when Jesus came, that the, the work of Jesus would actually be something that of the increase of his government, there shall be no end. What does that mean? It's never to slow down. and it, So it's not supposed to stop, number one, and it's only to increase. That's how this is supposed to work. But that has not been something that we've seen. In fact, I actually believe when we've said this, that we will be the first, not just this house, but people alive right now. I don't believe, this is going to mess with you I don't believe that this will be a generation that's alive that will see the rapture but I do think that this will be a generation that's alive that sees him come I think we've just missed the idea of what him coming looks like Okay, I do think we're going to see the son of man come and I do think that we're going to see a a, a change and a shift where the bride becomes what the bride is supposed to be. And I do think that there's going to be a purity that comes, and I do think there's going to be a light and a life that comes. But I assure you, he is not motivated or influenced by the darkness of this world. He is looking at light that overwhelms darkness. And he's absolutely not affected by Syria or nuclear war or anything else. And he's not looking at the news and thinking, well, Jerusalem's getting ready to get in war, so I better get Jesus ready. I'm serious. The church has spent far too long judging its eschatological teaching by what's going on in Israel. If I'm very honest with you, most most of the church, especially the evangelical church, has spent its time taking the gold of what we're supposed to learn from Israel, and we've created a golden calf that we worship at, which is what Israel's doing. That's, we look at what they're doing and that becomes the golden calf. Rather than learning from the gold of what they have taught us and what we see through the scriptures. And I'm not saying that God's not going to use Israel. I'm just saying he's not looking at Israel and Palestine to determine when he's going to come get us. That's just absolutely messed up. And what he's looking for is a bride that he doesn't have to heal and put back together on the way back to heaven. Because I'm sorry, but the bride that I see right now across the world, especially in the American church, doesn't deserve to wear white yet. I'll stop. Pastor Bill gave me one of those looks. Wisdom kicked in. Happens every once in a while. (laughs) From this posture, we can accurately view the wilderness that comes as a secondary product of an encounter As a place of encounter and identity. Think of this progression. Jesus comes to John the Baptist and is baptized. The pronouncement is given over Jesus as beloved. So identity is changed as a result of that encounter. And he immediately is led of the spirit into the wilderness. So here's the kicker. What we have done, we actually have completely missed the identity of what the wilderness is supposed to be because beloved identity is not permission to escape the wilderness, but it's permission to see what the wilderness is supposed to be, which is always a fruitful garden. If, if the wilderness is punishment or a dry place where we're missing God, why would God, as soon as he calls Jesus my beloved, drive him there? what's he punishing him for he's not he's saying what he's telling us once you glean your identity you will have permission to not see this how everybody else sees this and then we'll be able to walk into the culture of the world that is in the current state of wilderness and desert place and dryness and see this thing is supposed to be a fruitful garden i know who i am as beloved i can call this forward that's how this is supposed to work and in fact God, it's my suggestion, God didn't even create anything to be dry in the first place. We're really going to mess with you. It's my opinion, I'd like to at least suggest to you, that I don't think there were any deserts in the days of Adam. I don't think the firmament would allow it. Why? Because where did everything get water? From beneath and from the dew that would fall, never from rain. If there's that much of an aquifer beneath, do you think that life is not just going to automatically come as a result? In fact, there are a lot of people who study the development and patterns, we're going to talk about this next week too, but the patterns um, that happen, and do you realize that places that go into revival, a sustained revival, actually it begins to change the agriculture there has actually been trends that as, as the Lord is not allowed to be in places, as, as the presence of God is rejected, you can see some of the places that in the Bible are defined as being beautiful and incredible and full of life are right now in the Middle East, which is about as desert-like as you get. Look at what they look like in the Bible. So my point is, I don't think he created anything to be dry. I'd like to at least suggest to you, I don't think we should have dry seasons in our afternoon. I think that is interpreting something historically, not interpreting it biblically. I'm not saying that there shouldn't be times where we have to cry out for him because he loves to hide himself from us. I get that principle. But I also think that this thought that we live through the mountains and the valleys and we live through the desert times and the watering times is not scriptural and we can actually if we invest ourselves become a people who host an outpouring that is consistent and that is constant and that we don't have to exist in now I am now this dry, even when we are in the dry places or even as we are brought into an area that needs to be reclaimed we have an ability to bring water with us what amazes me about the dryness of uh, when people talk about, well, I'm just in such a dry wilderness time. how How is that supposed to be possible when out of you should flow rivers of living water? So you should never be able to be dry. I don't mean any of that to put anybody into shame or condemnation. I'm not criticizing. I'm not saying if you felt like that, that you're wrong. I've said those words. And I've said every one of those things justified by what I've looked at around me and the people in the past and, and looked at history and said, well, you know, that's just scriptural that you just go through really tough times. Well, I'm sorry. I do believe you go through tough times. But what it's my responsibility to do is to rejoice until joy shows up. Because scripturally speaking, what the Bible says is we may sow in tears, but we reap in joy. And so within that, sometimes only thing it takes for that pool that you're standing in that feels like a desert place to be activated is your tears. You crying out and that thing becomes activated and life begins to come. So what actually happens then is he brings us into this pathway of deconstruction or the realm of unknowing and undoing so that we do not continue to settle for any inferior aspects of knowing and doing. i say that again. He brings us to a place of unknowing and undoing so that he can strip from us any aspects of inferior knowing and doing. Lest you be poor in spirit. Remember we said a couple weeks ago, what you know. as soon as you determine that you're an expert, you've chosen where to level off. And so what he does is, he challenges within me even the things. Do you realize God's been challenging within me my thoughts on atonement? Atonement? Like, that's the basics. Like, Jesus, the cross, how all that stuff worked. Like, he's been dealing with me about that. And I'm realizing that there's stuff within my life that I have thought, meant things just because I was taught that's what they meant. So he's, he does that where he picks an area and he just begins to deconstruct. And what I'm really realizing is what it... Do, here's, hear me, this is really, really important and then we'll actually go into this, the, this is This is vital for us. If we don't see, if in the moments in which um, um, in which we're experiencing deconstruction, or the unknowing, the undoing. In fact, even you find that with Isaiah. Woe, I am what? Undone. Why? Because before you realize that woe, I am undone preceded, yes, Lord, I will go, send me. Why? Because there had to be an unknowing and an undoing that preceded the yes, I'll go. Otherwise, as we go, we're not going to present him in the actual image of his likeness the way this works. And and sometimes our, our vision and our perspective um, can lead us to states of where we get disillusioned about, you know, when this deconstruction starts in us in an area, my first response in my emotions and in my mind is to be disillusioned at the church, disillusioned at what I was taught, disillusioned at how I grew up, and get messed up and jaded about that. But what we have to understand is anytime we experience a disillusionment, that it is an opportunity for improper illusions to be stripped away. Disillusionment means I'm losing an illusion. And I don't want an illusion in the first place. But disillusion can actually lead us into offense if we retain disillusionment and we then don't process that properly, saying, Father, thank you that you're moving me toward free indeed. But we look at it and say, why didn't they tell me there was something better than this? If we then strike out or then we criticize, it leads us into that offense game. And what he's trying to teach us is that he wants to make us the most free people that have ever walked on the planet since Jesus. And in the process, not be offended by those who won't get free. That's really tough. How do we... Get a burden for the poor and the hurting and not be offended by the rich and the to Seriously. He doesn't care that you're a Democrat, he just doesn't want you to be offended with the Republicans. He doesn't care that you're a Republican, he just doesn't want you to be offended with the Democrats. He doesn't care that you love Israel, he just doesn't want you to be offended with Palestine. He does not care that you work hard at He just wants you to not be offended with people who won't work. Man, that was a good one, wasn't it? That was a good one. No, that was good, Joel. I'm just encouraging myself in the Lord. It's true. That's what happens. That's just what happens. And it's not, he's just trying to lead us into that place. That is the unknowing and undoing that he leads us into. That he can actually keep us in that place. That's what fruitfulness looks like. So the unknowing and undoing then deals with these inferior aspects of knowing and doing that we're tr- that we need to lose so that we can be functional correctly. He wants us to know and do the way he knows and does. Say that again. He wants us to know and do the way he knows and does. To where the impossible seems logical. Right? To where the supernatural is the most logical thing in the world, because it is to him. Do you realize that in our mind, think about this? Alright, I'm gonna I promise Michelle I'm gonna move on to the actual text. Promise. So do you realize that in our mind we have two ways of thinking natural and supernatural? He only has one natural. Because the supernatural is natural. That's the point. He only has one, natural. So he's trying to get us. We have for years said, Well, that's natural thinking and that's supernatural thinking, and we then divide and separate. And what he's saying is, nope, you're doing it wrong. I don't want you to criticize supernatural and or su- criticize natural and, and try to point out supernatural. I want the supernatural to so invade you that it becomes the most natural. I want it to overtake natural. We've divided off our life and sectioned things off and said, Well This aspect of my life is natural. I go tanning, and I go get coffee, and I go get Cinnabons, and I go do whatever else, else it is that we do. And this aspect is spiritual. I get up in the morning, and I read a chapter out of the Bible, and I say three Hail Marys, and I go about my way. Seriously. I turn on the news and hear all the good things that they have to say, and then I go about my way. And what, unfortunately, he's trying to get is... He wants the supernatural to be such a part of everything that we do. That fruitfulness is natural. That's going to lead into where we're going. So John 15. If you have uh, your Bible with you or in front of you or around you or somebody else is not paying attention, you can take theirs. Um, turn with me to John 15 and because we, we don't have a teaching sheet this morning. Okay? So John 15, we're going to look at... Several passages, and then I'm just going to paraphrase a whole bunch uh, because there's a couple things that I'm going to need to say to, to speak to this. So John 15, 1 through 17 is is one of, as I said, if not my favorite uh, story or passage in all of the Gospels. I just absolutely love it. I've always loved John. It's been my favorite. But um, but I think that this passage to me, John 14, 15, 16, specifically to me the keynote is just John 15 is just there just so good. And um, John 15 is the the vine and the branches, the principle of of abiding. It also talks about the difference between I've not just called you servants, but I've also called you sons, called you friends. All of that comes from this, right? So um, when you see this passage, know that that's the context. And Jesus says in John 15, I am the true vine, my father, the husband, and each branch. That bears not fruit, he takes away and every branch that bears fruit, he purges it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now you are clean through the word that I have spoken unto you, abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine. No more can you except you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me, and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. For uh, if a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into fire, and they are burned. Let me just make a note there. That is not speaking of hell. Okay? Most of our church eschatological teaching about hell comes from Dante's Inferno, not from Scripture. I'm serious. You realize that most of the guys that wrote your commentaries were writing it based on the the story of Dante's Inferno, not from the Scripture of hell where people are burning and not being burned and all that stuff, that didn't come from here. I'm not going to tell you what the Bible does say about it. That's another day. God is reminding me of wisdom. But the reality is that is that this idea of fire is not hell. And I would say it would do well for us to remember that that's not the point when we're reading passages like this in the New Testament. Most times when Jesus is referencing fire in the, in the Gospels, they are not references to hell. I'll just say that. will just leave that alone. Okay? This is because he's talking about a natural thing. He's using a natural thing to illustrate a spiritual thing. So why in the midst of it would he be talking? He's talking about how people would deal with no, uh, when they prune things. What do we do in the natural? When you go out and prune all of your branches, what do you do with them? You drag them. You prune them, and then you drag, drag them in, put them in the living room floor. You burn them. So that's That's the principle, okay? So just get that out of it. Here in verse 8, is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. So two things to identify. The Father's glorified by what? Now, how much fruit? Herein is my Father glorified that you do what? Bear much fruit, okay? Do you realize that in two different examples, Jesus in the New Testament gives us a parable about the ward of a, a farm or a field. In one instance, um, he takes his servants and gives them 10 um, uh, talents. And then in another instance, he gives them three mita, which is just another version of money. And he, um, he comes back and he judges their uh, what they've done with it, their investment, if you will. And do you realize that according to both those stories, the minimum accepted profit is 100% a year? Is really, 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 really into fruitfulness. Really, really, really. 100%? When's the last time you invested and got 100% return? It didn't happen a whole lot. I'm serious. It just didn't happen a whole lot. So, God is really into that. That idea, everything He creates is to be fruitful. The sun gives light, the trees give oxygen, they give shade. Everything that He created is for the purpose of being fruitful and of giving light and and, and and responding and reacting according to how it was created. And the reality of it is we're the only aspect of creation that has a choice, but that doesn't change the fact that he, all, he still expects us to be fruitful. We just have a choice. The sun doesn't get the option to turn off, right? But we have a choice, but it's about fruitfulness. So... Oh. A few things to consider this passage. The Father owns the vineyard, Jesus is the vine, and we become the fruitful branches as we are connected to the Father through Jesus. Now, here's the point. No vineyard, a real vineyard, no um, apple orchard, no um, uh, flowers that are in your flower garden have to think about being fruitful. They do not sit there and the, the vines don't go fruit, I declare grapes in Jesus' name. They don't try real hard or think real hard or go, apples, 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 apples. It's just natural. So when this scripture, the reason he uses this natural explanation or story is to define to us how it should be natural for us. The father is the husbandman Jesus is the vine. We're the branches. But the most natural thing in the world to us, as long as we stay connected to the Father and abiding in him through Jesus, is to bear fruit. It's not something we have to fight for. It's not something we have to stress about. It's not something we have to declare over ourselves. Sometimes we waste time. Sometimes we, we, we pray things and we spend time praying things and saying things that aren't necessary. So sometimes we speak over ourselves and we pray that, I, I, the Lord spoke to me this a couple of weeks ago. He kind of corrected me. I was praying with Amber. I always pray with Amber in the morning um, when she's at our house and, and before I leave. And I was praying with her and I know, this is good, she got the joy. See, that's what it looks like to rejoice before there's even joy. Uh, so I always pray with Amber and, and um, I always pray, Lord, just you know, be with her today love on her. Allow your presence to be there. And he spoke to me as soon as I finished praying. He said, why did you pray that? I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you pray, you're praying something I've already given. What do you mean? He says, well, I told you I'll never leave you or forsake you, so why did you ask me to be with you? Now, thank God, he's very, very gracious Thank think himself. He's very, very gracious. So in the process of of us praying that, he's got these like spiritual, heavenly uh um you know translations he's able to translate what we say even when it's not exactly what it's he's like, yeah, you said this, but that's really not right, I'll go ahead and give you this. This is what you meant. He does that because he's good to us. But part of what it is is I feel like that I have spent a long time trying to just think, I need to be fruitful, I need to do this, I need to be functional, I need to and he's just saying if you just abide in me the most natural thing in the world is for you to go through. criticism, I'm not saying that stuff. I'm just saying, if I'm, if my fruit isn't indicating it correctly, don't judge the fruit as being lacking. What you actually should be judging is that there's something off in my abiding. And and if you look here, right out of the gate he gives us an incredible example of the reward of fruitfulness. This is my favorite part. Okay? He says he rewards your fruitfulness. You know what the reward of fruitfulness is? For Every branch that bears fruit, here you go. He prunes it. The reward of fruitfulness is pruning. And the reason we've missed that is because we've judged pruning as punishment. When God comes to me and points out something that he's trying to adjust, i I always was taught that that is the judgment of God. And he is, he's punishing me. He's trying to get me right. He's hitting me upside the head and all that kind of stuff. That's just not how he does it. So the two ways that we have told people that they're, they're to be functional or fruitful on behalf of what God's doing is we've said, number one, there's this thing over here that is when he comes to you and starts dealing with stuff that you, the way that you, I'm just going to say it. And I, I realize this is a little bit, um, hyperbole or a little bit exaggerated, but understand the point. I always felt like that the more shameful I felt, the holier I was and the more seriously I was taking his pruning. I, I, once again, I'm exaggerating the point, but I always felt like the more, the more shameful I felt, the more me oh, I'm just such an idiot, and the more, if I could work up some tears, it really let him know I was serious. And so I felt like that the more, if anything, I could do like that, showcase to him that my genuine nature of recognizing the shame of my sin, he's so much more interested in you recognizing the weight of his love than he is the weight of your sin. And so within that, he doesn't even really want us to be looking at that. And the second thing that, that we've done in the church is that we've told people that the pruning precedes fruitfulness. Here's a, real, here's a real great one that we came up with in the early 1900s. In the early 1900s, we started teaching people that they had to be qualified to do things. It's about the same time that we started teaching people that there was a difference between preachers and lay people. And we started doing things like telling people, it's your job to bring them to church, it's my job to get them saved. We started asking people dumb questions like, how many people have you invited to church this week? That's the dumbest question in the world. It just is. I'm just being honest. It's just a dumb question. You know what I would rather say? How many people have you spoke life to this week? How many hurting people have you spoke life to this week? Now, if if you feel like you need to invite them to church, hey, if they ask you about church, totally cool with all that stuff i'm not anti-church here's a shocker you know i'm not anti-church but the point is we spend time doing that and all we do is grow our organization in fact in my opinion if most pastors weren't paid by churches i wonder how interested we would be in asking people how many people have you invited to church to grow my organization so i can retain my job and nice living Seriously. If we didn't want bigger buildings and I didn't want job security, would I really be interested in teaching about more people coming here or the fact that you need to tithe? Maybe that's why Paul is a tent maker. So I told you I was done. I'm gonna leave it alone. I'm just gonna leave it alone. So when you think about this kind of stuff, you really do find that there is this thing that he says. God is interested in fruitfulness. And within this, no vineyard has to fight to produce fruit. And we've told people that, okay, you need to get clean enough. You need to know enough of the Bible. You need to memorize scripture. You need to have walked with the Lord for a year, and then we'll let you take up offering. There are churches that I've been part of that have tests for people before they're qualified to take up offering or be a greeter. Jesus took the most demonically possessed guy in history and three seconds later made him an apostle. The guy that was running around naked in the cemetery, cutting himself through rocks, thousands, legions of demons. The guy falls at his feet, Does all he does is worship Jesus, gets free, demons runs out, and Jesus goes, Great, I was looking for a pastor. You know the disciple's head was like whiplash, like, What? If there's ever been a guy who qualified for a discipleship program, this guy is him. You know? Like, this is the guy. If ever we needed a new converts program, this guy is what demanded the need. Romans Road, like, he needs it. Jesus didn't do any of that stuff. Because what we teach is that You have to get pruned before you can be fruitful. Jesus says, I want you to be fruitful, and then I'll prune you. So, you find that there's this thing, three different instances I'm going to give you quickly, of three different stories where Jesus speaks of this. Because what he says in John John 15 is that, I've already pruned you through my word. Okay, That always confused me, if I'm just being honest. Because as a studier of the scripture, I was confused about how could they already be pruned. Did that mean that they didn't need to be pruned anymore? Like, with, was he saying it was already done? Was he saying it was through the Bible? They didn't have an advanced copy of this? Was it ID that they were pruned through? You know, clearly it wasn't the fucking Bronco Bible. Some of you haven't thought of that one in years. Yeah, you know, it wasn't the message, because that's a little too, you know. Um, so what is it that, how they prune through his word? Well, the thing that I think is really interesting is we need to look at that as a principle. So right there, that should define, for us a couple things. Number one, he requires, meaning the father, the husband, the one that oversees the field, requires of things. He doesn't ask you if you feel like it. He doesn't ask you if you qualify. He doesn't ask you how long you've been in church. He doesn't ask you how pure you are. He doesn't even ask you if your issues are taken care of. He just says, I require good things. And then he says, and as you do that, your issues will be what I claim as a result of it. Because there are some issues that don't get dialed up through weakness and failure, but only get dialed up through success and victory. Fruitfulness does something in us when, when it actually works. When you lay hands on somebody and like they get out of your chair, there's something that gets dialed up in you that doesn't get dialed up in you when you have made a mistake and when you have failed or when you have sinned or whatever other time that we think God comes and comes. So what he says is, I want you to do it because the way this works is that bud shoots out and all of a sudden there's trees there and he goes, perfect. That's exactly what I want. Yep, there's fruit there. That's exactly what I want. But this thing's growing out of the way a little bit. I need to prune that back. Why? So that my life can come. That's why he does this. So three examples. Oh, last thing, sorry. And then he says that the way he prunes is through the Word. I'm just going to be honest. That's not just this. So if you were to ask me, is that does that mean the Bible? Or does that mean his Word that speaks to you? Yes. Because if it was only the it transforms who you are because literally the word becomes him and it, then he comes in the room and in that encounter you know what it's like when you're reading the bible and then all of a sudden he's in the room right like i've been reading there's all time, kinds of times that i'll read the bible and it's good and it nourishes me and i learn from it and it's good principle but then there's times that i read the bible and all of a sudden he comes in the room. Says that when I speak to you, that is access to an inheritance, that is access to a value change that happens, whereby he prunes and adjusts with that out of bounds. Three times that Jesus did this with the disciples, because literally when he says here, I've pruned you through my word, three times he's already done this. So they know that. And no t- at no point in this did Jesus ever tell them to stop being fruitful until the pruning is done. Put a pen, right there. <clears throat> Luke chapter 9 is one of my favorite passages. Um, you, you can just note this. Luke chapter 9 is one of my favorite, uh, most favorite passages in all of the, the stories of the disciples because Jesus does this really wild thing. He tells the disciples, I'm going to send you out. You're going to cast out devils. You're going to heal the sick. You're going to raise the dead. You're going to do all the stuff that I've done. And he, Tells them, interestingly enough, that they're to go do this and then come back to him. Now, what happens when they go is this really wild thing where he sends them back to their hometown and we don't know what the breakthrough was. We don't know what happened, but we do know that it must have been like off of the charts incredible. Off of the charts incredible. Now, by my by my judging, none of those guys were qualified of those guys were qualified in the way that we would qualify them. And that's evidenced by what happens as a result of this incredible fruitfulness. I mean, like, they were seeing stuff that was off the charts. And I'll, I'll explain to you why I think that. So they see incredible breakthrough. The next passage, after they come back to Jesus, you find the group is off in this nice little huddle. And I'd like to make this practical if we came in, So all these guys are just standing around talking. And Jesus walks up to the group of guys and says, hey, guys, what are you talking about? He already knows what they're talking about, no doubt. Jesus never asked a question he didn't know the answer to. But he says, hey guys, what are you talking about? What they were talking about is who was the greatest in the kingdom. Okay? So he sends them out. They have incredible off-the-charts revival in their hometowns. Come back to Jesus and then get in the huddle and start debating about who's the greatest. Okay? Now, I'd like to note... That this is, as an example, some of the things that only get dialed up when it really works well. The ego thing, the pride thing, the narcissism thing, all that stuff that we all have, even those of us that, that always live in self-deprecation, that's just pride. Um, and. S- So, when you see this, it dials all this stuff up. Jesus, the first thing to notice, he sends them home to minister. Why does he send them home to minister? Because a prophet is not without honor except in his home town. And so, Jesus recognizes that if they can learn to function in fruitfulness in their home, they'll learn to do it out of obedience and not require the applause and the acclaim of Christ. The hardest place for you to minister is your hometown. Some of us, this is our hometown. I'm just being honest. Why? Because familiarity is there. Now I guarantee you, I could take any of you on a missions team and we could go into France and you and and they would think that you are God's gift to the kingdom. And things would be happening. You would lay hands on people and 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 see people touch. There's just something that happens. Why? because they don't know you're dunk. I'm serious. Why do you think most pastors like to travel to minister? Because it's an ego boost. You all hear me every week. When I go out and speak, they really like me. Like they have parades. No, I'm kidding. But no, they really, they really, really like me. You know, I've had people, i had a group of Indians try to put me in a chair and cheer and carry me on their shoulders. Like, they really like me. They think I have good stuff. We pull up front, there's like a banner that says, Greetings to the great apostle Joel Everson. I'm serious. This is what happens. Now, they asked me to then, like, pay for their church right after that, but that's that's not the point, you know? So, you know, this is the kind of stuff that happens, and it feels really good. So it's no wonder that people love to go out and minister. So it dials things up in you. Jesus recognized that, so he sent them to their hometown where he knew familiarity was going to be an issue. Why? Because if you can learn to prophesy here to the people that know you best and you know them the best, you're doing it purely out of obedience and never for applause. You're not doing it for identity. You're doing it out of identity. And so Jesus sends the disciples home to do this, and the response is absolutely off the charts. Incredible. And what I think is interesting is that when we get... Now, hear this, please, because we need to disrupt a couple things that we've thought and that I've taught. When we get a le- around the Lord, He stirs up dreams and desires. That's not wrong. If you now, redeemed and walking with your Father, if that hasn't your dreams and desires of what you can accomplish, then you haven't seen him in the way he wants you to see him. It should stir something up in you. I always have been taught that we need to push that thing down. It shouldn't stir up. And we say things like I'm dying to my flesh, all that kind of stuff. That's true. But what we have done is we have, we've misappropriated that and we have looked at it in if There's nothing that made Jesus happier than the disciples being around him and thinking it was possible for the entire country to be under the lordship of Jesus. But when they thought that, and he recognized they thought it in a natural way, he said, your dreams are right, but let me prune the way you're applying it. You get, you, did you get it? You see what I'm saying? It's, it's that. Like, if you don't think that you, when we get together, part of my job is to make you think you can save Greencastle. But I need to also be there to tell you you're not going to do it with your name and lights. But what we've told people is, nope, you die to those dreams. That's actually not accurate. It's just not. And it should dial up in you dreams that say, "I can live well. My children can be saved. We can prosper. We don't have to go live hand to mouth." All that kind of stuff—that's very natural in its own in its own right. Uh, All of that kind of stuff is still stuff that should be stirred within you. But when it becomes self-serving, you've become fruitful. Now that He looks and says that's self-serving, I want to prune that branch back. So what happens is. When they got around Jesus, their dreams and desires of personal significance stirred up. That's not wrong. Now, churches have told you it's wrong because pastors didn't know how to pastor people who had a dream of personal significance without either telling them to shut down or send them out to start their own church. Because you had a bunch of insecure leaders who didn't know how to lead powerful people. I'm living for the day when I can walk in here, and what I tell you on Sunday, you've already heard on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. That's my goal. If I do that, I've done my job. If you have to live based on what I've said, I have failed. That's an inferior, natural, egotistical success that is not kingdoming you. And so, what he says is. He comes to them knowing these desires and he looks at them and actually says, that's fruitfulness. You've went out and you've seen the effect of what's happened in your towns. And you're feeling stirred that literally it's possible to see what we've been living part of your life. And they're feeling an idea of personal significance within the kingdom. And he says, that's exactly right. However, let me prune this thing right here. He doesn't shut them down and tell them they can't go out anymore. He doesn't tell them to stop being fruitful. He doesn't even tell them that it's not within their reach to see their towns completely turned upside down on behalf of the kingdom. He just says, it's not about you. So he prunes. Second time, you find this, and and the way he pruned it is he simply said that the greatest in the kingdom is the one who lives in childlike wonder. That's what he said. What did he do? He pruned with what? His word. You've been pruned by my word. That's how he does it. Second time, the disciples come and they say they found somebody casting out devils in Jesus' name that wasn't part of their group. They were really excited about this one. So they actually come and find Jesus, and they're like, we've got it. You're going to be really proud of us. You're going to be really, really proud of us. And, you know, as opposed to the last time Jesus walks up to the group, they're all talking about who's the greatest. And Jesus probably says, hey, what are you guys talking about? over no, This time, they walk up to Jesus. They go find him, and they're like, Lord, we've got a good one. We want you to know what happened. We encountered somebody who wasn't part of our group, but was casting out devils in your name, and we told them to knock it off. Aren't we good? Didn't we do well? And Jesus says to them, no, don't you recognize that if they're not against us, they're for us? What did he do? He pruned with his word. However, do you realize most of our churches wouldn't have sent them back out after the time that they were debating about who is the greatest? They were staging a discipleship coup over Jesus. And he sends them out again? Are you kidding me? Most pastors get ticked off if the worship team takes five minutes too long. He eats into their sermon, and he's the highlight of the show. Let me just tell you this right now. at this, he responds then with his word and says, look, here's the deal. Your loyalty to the group is healthy. However, kingdom loyalty never requires disloyalty to another. Kingdom loyalty never requires you to attack or to push down anyone else who's functioning for me in order for your loyalty to be showcased to what I've asked you to do. It's never required that you attack somebody else's function so that your function and loyalty to that function is proven. That's isolationism, and we've seen what that looks like in the church today. That's just the way it is. The, the, the last is my favorite. All right, we're going to close with this one. So, the final way. Jesus deals with the disciples. Remember, they've went out. they They've seen, and this is the part that tells me that they they must have seen something in their hometowns that was like off of the charts of what we think is possible. Because the reason is they come to Jesus, and and Peter and John. I don't need to to define to you that Peter on this rock I'll build the church. He's the guy that gets up and preaches the sermon in the in the day of Pentecost. And John, like the guy that loves to lay his head on his chest, the beloved disciple. These two. So these aren't like also lights. First of all, remember that uh, I I do need to mention that Jesus, after he, after the first one, after he sends the disciples out and, and they do this whole who's the greatest thing, not only does he not shut them down, he sends out 70 more. He looks at them when they are debating about who's greater and he says, you know, this thing's really working. Are you kidding me? Yeah, this thing's working great. I think we need to send out 70 more. We would have like put everything on lockdown. Nobody is allowed to speak to anyone about anything. Like, we would have shut everybody down. There's nobody going out in ministry. I don't want you to do anything. Invite people to church. That's all you're allowed to do. Just invite people to church. Can't hurt anybody with that. Get them here, and then I'll tell them the right stuff. So Jesus sends 70 more out. That's how he judges truthfulness. Why? He he caused it to be truthful. He pruned where it was off, and then he saw more fruitfulness could come. So when they went out, apparently what they saw was so off the charts ridiculous that they come back to Jesus, Peter and John lead the way, and they walk up to Jesus and they say, you know, we've got this figured out, we've got a really good one for you, Lord, and we're going to take care of it. We just want to make sure that it has your blessing. So there was a, a couple cities that we ran into whenever we were out in ministry when you sent us, you know, you sent us, Jesus, remember, right, you cast out devils here, they said, you did and they say, you know, we ran into these couple cities that really weren't interested. So what we think we need to do is we need to call down fire from heaven and kill everybody in those cities. And we've got it handled. Like, you know, we can do this. It's no big deal. We've got it. We've got a plan. Um, but we just want you to say it's cool. Good idea, huh? Part of this is amazing because what, uh, what blows me away more than the, the presumption it blows me away that they thought it was reasonable and possible. Because part of what amazes me is what happened in these guys' hometowns? Like, what did they experience when they went home to have church services that they thought calling fire down from heaven was reasonable? Like, they must have seen who knows what that they would have thought, well, that's no big deal. Like, I saw all this stuff happen at home. Calling fire down from Heaven's Eve. That's Old Testament stuff. I can do that. Elijah did that. It's simple. But Jesus looks at them and says, No, I, I, I like where you're going. I like the fruitfulness. But see right there, that thing's growing way out of, out of the way. That branch is way over here. I'm going to prune that back. never... Off their fruitfulness or tells them to stop producing fruit. He keeps sending them back out to produce fruit again. And every time they come back to them, he says, Okay, now here's my word. My word comes, prunes. Now you go be fruitful again. Comes back. Okay, now here's my word. Good job. Notice he never shames. He never criticizes. He never puts them down. He never even brings. What we would do is, so if that happened, if I sent all you guys out today, and you went all you know, let's say you guys decide that metropolis, we're gonna let's make it small. You guys are gonna bring revival to metropolis and people don't listen, and you come back and you say not the town of Metropolis from the superman, but the uh, right up the street. So Metropolis, you come back uh, and, and you say it was you know, people didn't listen there. I think we need to call that you know, fire from heaven. I would I mean first thing I would say is we're not leaving church until we get this straightened out. Second of all, you are all on probation. You can't John 3.16 anybody. You can't do any. I'm, you can't do any. You can't give an offering until we get this straightened out. Like, this is huge. And Jesus doesn't do any of that stuff. He doesn't. We, what I would do, I'm just being honest, as a pastor, the first thing I would do is I would start evaluating their fruit to see. Now, here's what churches do. We would look at their fruit, and we would lay it out on the table and say, Now we better check this fruit to make sure none of it's tainted. Because there was this thing over here that was messed up. And so we better put all this fruit out here and make sure that is their motives mixed in there and all stuff. Jesus didn't mess with any of that. Why? Because that wasn't the point. He says, I want you to be fruitful, and then I just prune back your fruitfulness. That's just how he does things. So part of how we're going to continue to function in this revival that he's doing, this sustaining thing that he's doing, is the thought that we've got to continue to stretch ourselves to be fruit, fruitful or, or to continue to have measures of, of, of um, functionality and measures of um, um, really what I would say stretching ourselves to express what it is he's doing in our hearts in the ways that we before And within that, he's going to deal with, by his word, because he simply says it should be the most natural thing in the world to you if you're abiding in me. So our job is to protect the abiding. You stay connected to me, you're going to bear fruit. Why? Because he's the life giver. Do you think he's short on life? Stay connected to me, grapes are going to show up, number one. Number two, he says, but make sure that when I utilize that to prove to you that you pay attention and listen to my word. Because as I do that, I'm going to do it so that you can become more fruitful. That's the way this works. And that's really how this, in my opinion, this thing is going to become more and more and more and more and more sustainable and grow. It's not going to grow by us coming in feeling like, you know what, we were supposed to give a word to somebody this week, and I just didn't get anything for anybody, and, and us saying, all right, man, you know, we gosh, you're going into the shame game, and going into the beat-each-other-up game, and all that stuff. just doesn't work that way. It's only going to be by saying, okay, look, that should identify to us an area where we need to work on trust. So let that be pruned so we can go forward. And what's going to happen is, is that regardless of i we're actually going to experience fruitfulness that never stops. Fruit that doesn't end. and, and But we have to be willing. Number one, I, I, we have to know, it doesn't say that the pruning is going to come from your word. That's part of the kicker. When you see somebody bearing fruit, but a branch going wrong, There's never time for you to speak to that person. But part of it is to really just pray that they would abide in the Father. Because if they abide in Him and His voice is there, He's going to deal with it. I've got issues. The only difference is my issues probably show up when I'm speaking to you twice a week from the platform. Just being honest. I mean, I have issues. We've all got issues. Some of our issues have issues. will we be willing to just slow down Jesus has never gotten hurt slow down and see fruit that comes and remains and comes and remains and comes and remains and that as he turns it back more fruit will continue to come so we're going to talk uh, I think on Sunday we'll look at a couple things regarding the um, the, the wilderness and, and what that really looks like when we start seeing fruit in life in places where the dead places. But um, for this moment, I would encourage you, and I felt like that last Thursday what we did was such a a foundation for this, in that that's what bearing fruit looks like. The fact that we would regard the encounters we're experiencing him, give a testimony of that. The fact that we would make declaration about that. I know of at least a half a dozen of you that from what was done on Thursday night, sent me a note on Friday that there were and there were breakthroughs and all kinds of stuff that were done as we all grabbed hold of what was done on uh, Friday night. At least three people that I know were miraculous. That wasn't even their testimony on Thursday night. That's just so cool. He can do that. So that's part of what this fruitfulness is. But continue to stretch that. Continue to press for that. Continue to get. better. We better be giving words to people. We better be looking for an opportunity to give life. We better be looking for an opportunity to invest and be gracious and be kind and show people His likeness and His nature. Amen? It's what we're supposed to do. So Father, we thank You for this. We thank You for this day. We thank You that that You are, in measurable ways, You are helping us to understand the life that You've caused us to live and that You've brought us into. And it, it really is not about us. But so much of this is just that we would abide in you that we would hear your voice and that as your voice comes that it would stir within us the possibility that it would stir within us the things that you want to do and then as a result of that that father you would bring us into this incredible place where fruitfulness is the most natural expression because of our abide. that that prophetic words that whether it's um whether it's instances of um just speaking grace over people or or giving as you have inclined us to do so, uh, whatever it might be, Father, that those things, that fruitfulness, the the whether it's the, the fruit of the Spirit that we find find in the Scripture or just any fruit that you give, Father, help that to be natural and normal to us. Help us to recognize we never have to strive for it, but if we stay in you, it's what you do in us. We're the branch. That's, the, that's our job. And you love fruit. It glorifies you. And we thank you that within this, you've given us a place where fruitfulness and where uh, finding you is the most important thing because we recognize that everything we do is measured to proximity. Everything we do is measured to how close can we get to you. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, just a reminder, we've got um, Reverend Taylor on... um, on Thursday night, and uh, so um, Noah's going to be speaking Thursday night, and I know that's going to be a, a great blessing, and don't forget that everybody needs to, to give at least one word, one prophetic word this week, um, and we'll see you on Thursday. Have a great, uh, have a great day.